IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss the new album by Soccer Mommy. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I also refer to him as College Football Daddy, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? You know, the funny thing about that is that you're the one from the Midwest. You're an actual father. You're really into Jason Isbell and drive-by truckers. I mean, college... <laughs> and also, but just... By, by, is it college football your main sport, though? Uh, it I, absolutely is. But, I mean, you, you, right. you have the framework. You have, like, the potential... To really just be that, like if if you ever decide that hashing out uh, indie rock trends is no longer the direction you want to take your career in, like there is just so much potential for you in you know co- in college football Twitter, just pivoting to that completely. Also, I should mention that uh, I have yet to adjust to West Coast time, and I've been up since four thirty. It took it took me a few minutes to realize what college football daddy was referring to so yeah you know i don't know if it's corny to still be making soccer mommy jokes uh but i figured why not i I guess that's like a dad joke with college football daddy in there yeah uh you know it's a little bit of a stretch i mean look i am about to go on vacation this this is a we're recording on friday june 17th this is a banked episode so we're, we're recording this a week ahead of when we're posting when this episode actually goes up i will be in a northern minnesota cabin on a lake be i'll be boating i I will have been boating for several days at that point so i'm already thinking about that i'm a little distracted uh so yeah you had your vacation earlier this month now it's my turn we're just banking episodes left and right um i guess we're already kind of missing things we we know for instance that there's a new Drake album, which is out on the 17th. Yes, it just dropped the morning of um, us recording. It's already proving to be very divisive in a way that like, I didn't expect a Drake album to be. I think there's just... I mean, look, he's still one of the biggest, if not the biggest artists on the planet. Uh, I'm sure this will spawn many hit singles as Certified Lover Boy did. Um, but I don't see it in the same way as like appointment. Oh, I got to stay up past, you know, bedtime, i.e. 9 p.m. on the West Coast to listen to this new Drake album so I can be part of the discourse. It sounds like it's an entirely him singing over dance beats album. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, that's uh, passion fruit, the album. That's, you know, not the worst idea. Maybe I'll find a few songs to like about it, but I think at this point, like Drake albums no longer are the appointment listening they used to be. I think that it, I don't even know if like we would have covered this as like the meat of an episode. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we talked about his last record, uh, Certified Lover Boy, which, um, you know, again, it seemed like the pattern of, of recentish Drake albums where there's a lot of songs, he's thrown a lot of material out there. You expect that there's going to be memes generated from whatever he's doing on the latest record. I mean, it's funny to be talking about this now because, again, we're recording on the 17th. This album just dropped. The discourse will already be a week old by the time this goes up. So, you know, you mentioned that there was a backlash already. I wonder how that's going to play out. We don't know. I mean, people might be listening to this and thinking, 
what a what a funny time capsule <laughs> this episode is from a week ago. Uh, the reacting to this album in real time. Um, there's there's also a new Beyonce record that was just announced. Yes. Um, that is coming out in August. It's, it's it? about a month. I think late July. It's Renaissance late July. Act One. So I don't know if this implies further releases, but what I mean, I, I was wondering, and we've talked about this on previous episodes, like what like what the reaction would be to a new Beyonce record because of, you know, the fact that she's still like, you know, a billionaire and has spent the past couple of years, aside from the live album, mostly doing like Lion King or, you know, just kind of Disney adjacent stuff. And, you know, safe to say that on the previous episode, we talked about like 2016, the year of Lemonade being kind of a time capsule. Uh, People are still very much in the no, you calm down. Like, please run me over with a truck kind of a reaction to a Beyonce record. Well, that was that was the Pitchfork subhead. Yeah. It said something like, no, you calm down. Like, it said, new Beyonce record, no, you calm yeah. down. Which I thought, <laughs> they're a little sassier lately Sassy. over at Pitchfork. With their with their social media presence and some of their headlines. They're, they're being, a little, being a little sassy. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, again, you know, we're having this conversation about Kendrick Lamar. Where, you know, Kendrick and Beyonce may be the two most critically acclaimed artists of the 2010s, along with Frank Ocean. Like, that'd be the... Fiona Apple, i throw in there, too. Yeah, but, you know, Fiona being a person who drops a record every, you know, 10 years. Okay. I mean, those... those I feel like those three were the real trifecta. Yeah, maybe bring Fiona Apple in. Um, but, you know, it's been six years since she's put out a proper record. And I'm always curious, like, that is a long time... In pop music, are the kids that are coming up the, the the kids that were like say eleven years old when a lemonade dropped when lemonade dropped and now they're seventeen, like how do they look at Beyonce? You know, is it the same way that like people of our generation would have looked at, I don't know, um, like Madonna from like nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety three? I mean, still a big star, but definitely had changed mm. in terms of her prominence in the culture. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. Um, one thing we do know for sure is that uh, there's a new Goose album. There out is today. a new Goose album, and have you? But you you haven't heard the Goose album. Well, yet. I haven't heard it in full, but I did take the opportunity to listen to the singles that were available, and you know, you put all of those singles combined, and it is longer than a Joyce Manor record. But I'm very interested uh, in hearing this because, um, I mean, with Goose, I see. What I was surprised by, and by the way, like I went into this album knowing nothing about what Goose actually sounds like, aside from the fact that they're a jam band. That yeah, we should say quick. And I, we've talked about this band a little bit, I think, in the past. Like I wrote a big feature on them. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that was in March. I called them America's next big jam band or the next great jam band. I think I called them, um, and they've been kicking around for a while now. They're at the point now where they can headline Red Rocks and sell it out. They uh, Actually, the weekend that this show posts, they'll be playing two shows at Radio City Music Hall. I know one of them was sold out. I, I don't know what the status of the other one is. But uh, this is the next band in the lineage. You know, they, they, they're, they're coming after Fish. Fish is, <laughs> yeah, Fish is still really big. I mean, they're not coming after okay. them in the sense of, like, going after their crown. I just mean that they're the next, it feels like, in the secession of, like, big name jam bands it seems like goose 
is on a trajectory where they're going to maybe be playing arenas and amphitheaters like like Fish does now, like in maybe three or four years. But yeah, they have a new album out today. It's called Drip Field. And you said you've heard the singles from it. Yeah. How do you feel about so, it? So I think back to, um, you know, having been back at college uh, and remembering uh, the Fish fans that I was friends with who were, this was around the time I think Billy Breathes came out or Farm, it was, it was, it was the era bordered by Billy Breathes and Farmhouse. Uh, so like 96 to 99. I think it was more like 98 to 2001. Farmhouse was like 2000. It was like 2000. Okay. Billy Breathes is 96. Got it. All right, so those are the albums that I remember them being like, hey, man, like, I know you're not into this jam band sort of thing, but here's like, it, it's like an actual album. It sounds like it could be on the radio. And I think that I was surprised uh, by what I heard on the Goose album. I mean, these songs are like five to seven minutes long, so they're not trying to be like down with disease or uh, whatever those other fish singles were. But it, it, it surprised me how kind of, indie rock it sounds like this sounds like a band that could have been on secretly canadian and open for real estate back in the day um yeah and so i wonder if they i don't know if they're like the you're you're the expert here like they don't sound to me so much like fish as perhaps like my morning jacket like a jam band that could still move in like indie rock spaces like is this their it still moves maybe well, I think Billy Breeze is a good comparison because that was, I think, the first Fish album where they were actually able to make a record that wasn't just trying to replicate the live show. Like, it, like the songs were relatively concise. I mean, those songs obviously were jammed out once they were played live, but it was a record that made Fish fit more with like the alt-rock bands of that era. And I would say that this Goose record... Uh, Dripfield has a similar vibe to that. And you mentioned them sounding like indie rock. And I think you're uh, definitely on the right track with that because this is a band, these are all guys like in their late 20s, early 30s. They grew up listening to Vampire Weekend, Bon Iver, uh, Fleet Foxes, Local Natives, bands <laughs> like that. Like those yes. are the formative bands for, for this group while also listening to The Dead and fish and umphreys mcgee and all that stuff so it it really is a band that's melding those two scenes i think even more so than my morning jacket who have like jam like tendencies but for the most part they're not playing they might have like one song it's usually like steam engine is like their big jam vehicle that they'll play for 20 minutes but for the most part you go see my morning jacket they're not you know going too far away from the studio version's most of the time whereas a band like goose like they'll play these songs on this record that are five to seven minutes long and they'll end up being like 15 minutes long live uh but it is i think a testament to this band that they do take making records seriously and it is a record that i think even if you're like i don't want to see a band play you know a song for 15 minutes that's not my thing you could still i think get into this record and enjoy it's like well i'll just enjoy the studio stuff um it's funny that we're talking about this because this is we have a mailbag question that's related to this so we'll probably talk about goose again later in this episode i'm always thrilled to squeeze goose (laughs) into indiecast but um i want to ask you quick i i wrote a a a column earlier this month on the new tim heidecker 
record, uh, which is out today. It's called High School. And, uh, of course, Tim Heidecker, one half of Tim and Eric, probably the most influential comedy show of the last 10, 15 years, certainly in terms of internet comedy. I mean, am, am I wrong there? It's, I feel like a lot of stuff that we see on the internet comes from like what they did on their show in the office. Kind of a blind spot for me, surprisingly enough. Like I've enjoyed everything I've seen about them, like cinema on cinema. Um, and yeah, it's like the Tim and Eric show. Like that's just uh, not something that I've really, uh, that I've really ingested. Um, I, I guess I missed my window for it. And, um, but yeah, you're definitely not wrong. Um, may, maybe there's like another thing that someone could identify. It's like, oh yeah, clearly that. But if you, I think just off the dome, like that being the most influential, it's definitely one of the most influential. And one of the themes of that show was taking, uh, you know, different forms of media, especially like old media, uh, like VHS type media and deconstructing it and like putting it back together in these like grotesque shapes. Like to just, like, I don't want to intellectualize this too much because I think at, at its core, it's just like a silly, funny show. But I think there is a commentary in a lot of what they do about show business and the media and like how gross a lot of it is. And you just have to exaggerate it a little bit like <laughs> to sort of underline how just insane a lot of the media that we consume is, which is, I think, one of the reasons why that show resonated with people. And it was interesting talking to, to Tim about his music because as he's moved along in his music career, he started out doing parodies and more sort of, I guess, uh, you know, comedy music. I don't know what the right term would be. Uh, he started out doing that in the early 2010s, but as he's progressed... His music has gotten more and more straightforward and more earnest to the point where his latest record, I would say, has no satirical element at all. It's a record where he's writing about growing up in the early 90s as a teenager and all the things that impacted him at the time. And, you know, when I talked to him, uh, it was interesting because, I mean, we're around the same age and we have... Uh, you know, sort of similar tastes in music. He's a big singer-songwriter fan. He loves Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and people like that. And his record is like a very straightforward version of that. And it's interesting to me because he's going on tour where he's doing his music, but he's also doing his stand-up, which is a piss take on stand-up, basically. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen his stand-up comedy special. No, I've not. But he's basically playing... He's, he's playing a character where it's like the hackiest stand-up ever just just going through like all these different tropes like there's a bit that he does about how his wife wants to take him to the opera <laughs> and you know and he and he's just being an asshole the entire time he's at the opera stuff like that but like that stand-up character is also named tim heidecker you know and his character on in on in cinema which is like this megalomaniac uh you know jerk is also named tim heidecker but then he's also doing music as tim heidecker but it's himself it's just a lot of different layers of like meta uh, sort of commentary going on in his persona. It's really interesting. I, and it, it, I mean, and I feel like it's probably confusing to some people, although I think people who really like him get it. But I don't know, like there's a blurring of lines between his persona and who he actually is. And like his records are like where he can actually be who he is. Yeah, I think that <laughs> I, I, I would love to find 
a person if they exist who like listens to this Tim Heidecker album because they're just really into like space bombs uh, label or whatever. And <laughs> right. they're like, wait, this guy does comedy. What's up with this? Where it just completely submarines the entire thing. Um, I love the fact, I-, I always love when like artists open for themselves, you know, like uh, the times I see like Atlas sound open for deer hunter, get that bag, Tim to Heidecker. Um, I had not listened to any of his records prior to this one. Um, and I wasn't like overly surprised by what I had heard. I knew he was kind of in that, um, you know, singer songwriter, like kind of, I would describe it as like, you know, Foxygen extended universe sort of vibe. Right. And what well, he's worked with Jonathan Rado in the past from Foxygen, he not on this record, but I mean, that's definitely an, uh, did you know that? No. That he worked with Rado? No. Okay. Well then you, you just made an intuitive observation <laughs> then because like he's, he's, he's tight with him. He's tight with like, Wise Blood yeah. and Mac DeMarco, Kurt Viles on this record. I mean, so he's definitely in like an indie rock community in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, working with a lot of those people. Yeah, and when I heard the song like Sirens of Titan, like you know, which is a Kurt like about a Kurt Vonnegut book and about you know going to hear him speak at a university and say i love that one line i was fiscally conservative until i got that college degree it's like right it reminds me if like you would just adjust the dials a little bit it could be a father john misty song in both its content and its delivery but you know like i i enjoyed it and also like i gotta i gotta wonder what it's like to be somewhat like just straight up musician who's operating in this realm and, you know, to see Tim Heidecker do it this well, even when he's got all this other stuff going on, it's got to be kind of demoralizing, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, he's just a talented yeah. guy, so he can do a lot of different kinds of things. But, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, that the Sirens of Titan song because that we talked about that. He actually said that uh, he saw Kurt Vonnegut speak in the early 90s and – Vonnegut talked about how he was a supporter of Bill Clinton and Heidecker actually heckled him for that because he was, you know, he came from a conservative family. So he just followed what his parents were into at that time. And it wasn't until he got a little bit older and he read some books and he went to college that he turned it around. And I mean, now he's like a pretty vocal you know guy on the left he made a I mean, he made I'm, an anti he made an anti-trump record in like november 2017 but it was like not like resistance type. i was like what was the what was the name of it too dumb for suicide that was the right. album he made uh well and and you mentioned father john misty he covered one of the songs from that record i, I think just in concert but there's a song i think it's called like trump's limo driver chomp's private pilot yeah Trump's private private pilot, and it's like sung from the perspective of Trump's private pilot, and uh, Father John Misty covered that. Yeah, song. I also like how on that album. There's a song called Four Chan, but it's like F O R Chan, so maybe you think it's like for you know a tribute to Cat Power or something like that, as opposed <laughs> to you know the on the online Four Chan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and, and it's interesting with him too. I keep saying interesting, um, but. Uh, you know, I think with Tim and Eric, there is an element of their fan base that lurks in those dark corners of the internet. You know, just because there was something so irreverent about that comedy uh, and sort of like purposely off-putting that it also attracted kind of some of the worst people <laughs> on the internet who have adopted, 
you know some of the tropes of like Tim and Eric's comedy, and um, and I think he's had to react against that a little bit, you know, because he's 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 made it very clear that he is a very strong progressive, and again, like if you follow him on Twitter, you know, there's no irony in his presentation it's like he's very earnest i think about a lot of different things and when i talked to him you know he was a very thoughtful person he definitely was like not in character and i don't know like how many comedians you've interviewed but it's always interesting when you talk to a comedian uh who is known for you know having a very like a reverend persona but then you talk to them and it's almost like they're relieved that they don't have to be funny in a conversation you know that they can be just themselves and that's always like a you know like a fun type of interview to do. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with many, many comedians in the past, and yeah, there it's it, it it's I can see why it's so much more stressful than being a musician because you know when like you could be whatever the fuck you want, like when you're up there making songs, you'd be sad, you'd be angry, you'd be happy, but like comedians, like you got to be funny, and that like right. if you're not funny. You can't, you know, just play a 20-minute jam. You can't, like, turn up the reverb. <laughs> There's nowhere to hide if you're not funny. And, yeah, that it explains just, like, why comedy is so much more of, like, a grueling and demoralizing line of work. Yeah. <laughs> it, you know, yeah, if you're interviewing a musician, there's no expectation that, oh, they have to pull out a guitar and start singing in an interview. But if you're interviewing a comedian, I think sometimes you know, people immediately want them to be funny. And it's like, okay, now we're going to do sort of a jokey interview where I'm setting you up and you're going to do quips. And when you interview a person like that and they realize that you're not expecting them to do that, you almost feel like a palpable yeah. <laughs> sense of relief from from them. It's like, oh, wait, I don't have to do bits the entire time. I can just talk and be myself. Um, so that's that's always an interesting thing to do. But yeah, I would never, I mean, comedian seems like the worst job. It's, in the world it's it's pretty terrible it's i i've compared it oftentimes to like boxing uh in that at least this was the way it was before before things like got democratized with funny or die but it was like you know with boxing you have like the like you gotta like really slum it out and then once you make it you've like really made it so there's just this enormous stratification uh, between those people who are successful and those who are just kind of slugging it out and, you know, probably ending up with some kind of brain trauma from, like, you know, doing seven straight shows at the Chuckle Hut in Indianapolis at, like, 12 and 2 a.m. Yeah, and you're also surrounded by terrible comedians all the time, too, which is <laughs> oh another God, kind yeah. of torture, you know. It just seems like it seems like bad comedians are some of the worst people on Earth. Uh, you know, just... Like bad people, you know, uh, you don't want to be around. Like, not only are they not funny, you know, there's maybe something shady going on. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of the bad comedians I saw in my old line of work were actually like really nice guys, but just like once you saw them perform stand up, you just could not look at them the same anymore. <laughs> I mean, right. we could do it. Like, I actually don't want to do an entire episode about my time working in comedy because, um, I, I wasn't a comedian myself. I worked on like the management, like entertainment side of things. But um, yeah, it was it was a profound. It it was really awful, and uh, it is in uh, a way that I don't care to explore right now. Directly responsible for uh, the kind of lifestyle I lead right now. So yeah, I mean, someone needs to write us a letter about Ian's comedy past, oh, fuck, and dude. then we can talk about. It. We have an excuse to talk about. It. Um, <laughs> All right, well, let's get to our mailbag segment here. Thank you all 
for writing in. Um, you know, like I said earlier, we've had a couple banked episodes this month, so we've had a big backlog of emails that we're trying to get th- uh, through here. Uh, we haven't gotten th- to all of them, and I'm sorry if you write us and we're not able to uh, get your email on the air, but we appreciate you reaching out, and we have such nice people that write in. It's always great to hear from you. If you want to hit us up, we're at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, we actually have two letters in our mailbag today. Do you want to do the first one? I absolutely Ian? do. So, because I feel in some ways this one's direct. It, it's it doesn't always break down to oh, this is a Steve question, this is an Ian question, but oftentimes you could tell like the readers trying to lean a certain way. Um, it's like, hey, Ian, I want to talk. Oh, Steve, also, I love the pod or something like that. Um, this guy. <laughs> Loves the podcast, and thanks for all the work you put into it. It's my only source of English indie music conversation since I live in Quebec, and I don't speak much English with most of my friends. So, again, thank you. So, we got Quebecois, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I'm going to butcher I'm yes. going to butcher the pronunciation of something today. So, uh, Jean-Paul asks uh, us what we think about the weaker thens, uh, that they offer a healthy dose of what Steve might call Heartland Rock and certainly have some pop punk slash emo influence for Ian. So I'm curious if you enjoy them. Listening to the last latest album by MJ Lenderman, a IndyCast favorite, I'm reminded strongly of the weaker thens, but being that they're Canadian, it's hard for me to situate their level of influence. Am I remembering some guys or am I name dropping an obvious group that a number of US-based bands might have enjoyed? Cheers! Sean Paul or Jean Paul. Sean Paul did give me the light. Never mind. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Jean Paul, thank you. And I took French in uh, middle school and high school, but I don't remember a word of it. <laughs> so just take it from me. I'm glad you know English uh, so you can hear us talk. Uh, we should say quick, I guess, just for those who don't know the Weaker Thans, I think they're a fairly well known band, but they're not super well known. This is a Canadian band. Uh, like Jean-Paul said, uh, they have, I guess, I feel like they're broadly described as an emo band, although I don't think that that's totally accurate. Like Jean-Paul says, there's also, I think, some, you know, like Heartland Rock type stuff. I think that they're best known maybe primarily for the lyrics. I mean, this is one of those bands where a guy is talking and telling stories. (laughs) You know, I think you could group them in with the Hold Steady and um, uh, the Mountain Goats. Uh, I would say, like, definitely category? Jawbreaker slash Jets to Brazil. Like, um, right. I'd say the weaker thans are not uh, directly an emo band, but they are so revered in that space that... I feel like that's the core yeah. of, their, of their fans. And they've been around, I mean, it's like about 20 years at this point, isn't it? I mean, they do they go back to the 90s? Well, they, or do, they, they like... do in that John K. Sampson, I believe, was in Propagandi, uh, which is yeah, oh, which right. is another like very important band for a lot of people. But yeah, I, I don't know if there's like a name for this genre of, you know, like, I just imagine like a guy, it's like a guy with like sleeve tattoos in a bar reading Bukowski uh, and just like having a beer in right. the middle of the afternoon. Like that's just what they do. Um, <laughs> like a talking, like talking beer. Yeah, music. exactly. I, I, I would call it that, you know, like a, a 38 year old guy uh, who's into home brewing, <laughs> maybe, yeah. possibly. We're, we're very much um, type of guying this, but you know what, like that's. I don't think they mind. That is a very reliable fan base. Uh, like the whole steady. Good people. Yeah, like it seems like a very good fan base. Good yeah. people. 
smart people maybe take themselves a bit seriously you know like otherwise they'd be into music where you just like kind of point and shout the whole time um yeah i mean it's so funny because we we've described the weaker thans in such rich detail based on their fan base but like the music itself i mean like i'm very curious if like you are into that because like you you tend to be into more like the hold steady uh you know than i am I don't know how you feel about you know, like Jawbreaker though. I like Jawbreaker yeah. well enough. I'm not a huge fan, but you know, I, I appreciate what they do. You know, you recently suggested that we do an episode on legacy bands that are blind spots mm-hmm. for 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 the both of us. Uh, and if we were to do that, I think the weaker thens would probably come up either by me or by you. Um, this is a band I've dabbled in, and I have to say that my dabbling didn't necessarily inspire me to go deeper. It just wasn't something that really connected with me, even though on paper, it's I, I totally understand why it should. And I would say the same thing about the Mountain Goats, who are probably the ultimate example of that for me, where I look at it and I admire John Darnielle as a writer. I appreciate the impact that those albums have had on people, especially you know the, some of the earlier records that they put out when... Uh, it was essentially a solo project for Darnielle. It seems like they've evolved more into a conventional band in the last several years, you know, like with John Worcester being on drums and I forget who else is in the band. I know John Worcester though has been the anchor there for a while. Um, I got to say that, and I say this as someone who loves the hold steady, that my problem (laughs) with both of those bands like mountain goats and weaker thens is just, I find the vocals to be, uh, deal breakers for me, uh, especially the mountain goats. There's just like a, I'm trying to think of the right word. Choose them carefully. <laughs> There's like a hectoring element to the lyrics where, again, I think a lot of the words are good, but it's almost like they're delivered like a finger being jabbed in your chest. And it doesn't really give you a chance to let it land on your own terms. Uh, and it, I don't know. For me, it just has not connected. It, it 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 tends to turn me off pretty quickly. I had a pretty similar experience. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think back in like two thousand four or five, like my girlfriend at the time was really into a plea from a cat named Virtue, uh, which is a song the Weaker Thens make from like the perspective, like a depressed guy, uh, like is hearing from his cat. Which I thought, oh, that's super clever. It was really aligned with a lot of the indie trends at the time, but. Yeah, I've dabbled in weaker thens just because, you know, you run in the circles that I do and it's just nonstop about their importance about John K. Sampson being a genius. And yeah, like the the issue is that I think the words are great. And, you know, I really enjoyed John Darnielle's new book, Devil House. Uh, I've also had trouble really connecting with Mountain Goat's albums. I also think it's kind of funny that like John Darnielle is a guy who pops up in like Facebook conversations I find myself in with music writers and man that guy does not like the Smashing Pumpkins I'll tell you that much he really doesn't really I I I recall that like he just got really really mad about the Smashing Pumpkins which look that I think like why I well I mean this can be an entire episode but you think about like how (laughs) Billy Corgan rubbed people the wrong way particularly people who you know, we're kind of like outsiders and really into like indie rock values. I mean, he had beef with who? Like Kim Gordon, uh, Courtney Love, uh, 
Steve Albini. I mean, you name it. Billy Corgan beef with uh, Steve Malkmus. So I, I can understand how someone of like John Darnielle's like, um, you know, tastes and age might really fucking hate Smashing Pumpkins. But yeah, I, it's fun. I think the weaker thans are just the kind of band that I missed my window with. And I think, you know, Me Without You is kind of a similar band. But then again, I don't know if I were like, really more intent on listening to the weaker thans back in the early 2000s, 2000, you know, the mid 2000s. I love bands like Bright Eyes and Okerville River, which are kind of working in a similar lane, but were more emotionally and musically unhinged and demonstrative. Like I just needed it to be like super extra and not clever, you know, like I, I, I just, I just think that the weaker thans are a band I can respect. And also I can live without their music. And, you know, fortunately, most of the people I know who are like weaker than obsessives, they get it. They understand it's not for everyone. They're they're much less hectoring than uh, the music sounds. Yeah, they're they're a nice, uh, nice fan yeah. base. So yeah, they get it. They're, and they're, you know, Canadian. They're from Manitoba, I'm, not just Canadian. They are Manitoban. I'm still hung up on this uh, John Darnielle thing. It's like, <laughs> get over it, man. Like, you're still upset about, like, indie politics of the 90s? I mean, come I on. I think he just let's, hates the music. I think he... Yeah, maybe Yeah, so. I think the lyrics and the Well, music. you know, that's... that's your, Okay. It, that's his right. But I'm just saying, like, if you're still... I see this sometimes. People form an opinion in the 90s, and they're still holding on to it. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, Stone Temple Pilots. Like, they ripped up Pearl Jam. I hate Stone Temple Pilots. Like... It's 30 years later. <laughs> Can we like drop the, you know, you still invested in like the alt rock politics of the nineties. I don't know. It just feels like we got to move on. Yeah. We, de- we definitely never, point. we definitely never hold us to opinions. We formed in the nineties. <laughs> well, yeah. Other people do that. Not us though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right. So I said at the top that we had two letters, but I'm looking at the clock here and we've already gone past 30 minutes. And we haven't gotten to the meat yet. And I feel like I'm going to make this rule right now that if we're not to the meat by 30 minutes, that we have to ripcord whatever <laughs> we're talking about and get to the meat. You know, we got we, we got hung up on the weaker thans and talking about stand-up comedians. <laughs> I think there's a lot yeah. of overlap. Like the weaker thans are kind of a band that you could easily imagine a stand-up comedian being the opening act. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I want like you get the meat in 30 minutes or less to be like our new slogan or something. That's shit true. Like that. Can we like, can we like arrange something like that with Uproxx? Yeah. You know, we we got to get some t-shirts made, you know, <laughs> the meat in 30 minutes or less, uh, is our, is our new motto here on IndieCast. Um, do comedians still open for bands? That seems like a terrible gig for comedians. Um, on the, on the, on the last jawbreaker tour, um, that actually happened. It was like quite a few, um, like I think Kyle Kinane was one. Oh of yeah, he's a total guys. indie rock. Yeah, opener. like a lot of Chris Gethard. I mean, that's been oh, like yeah. kind of that dude's entire thing is just being aligned with uh, like you know fest, right? And fest adjacent type. Uh, bands. That'd be another episodes we rank indie rock comedians. All the all the all the comedians <laughs> who are indie rock adjacent. Uh, you know, the, uh, Kyle Kinane, Chris Gethard. Um, Irene too, yeah. She uh, she opened for uh, Jawbreaker uh, in Chicago. Um, yeah, they're countless. I mean, you know, the Aziz Ansari used to be that. Yeah, but, um, I mean, I know, like in the seventies, you know, you, you hear stories about like Steve Martin when he was just getting started, having to open for the Doobie Brothers or something, and that just, <laughs> just seems like a terrible gig. You know, people just want to hear music, and then you you have to go on stage and tell jokes for. 
25 minutes. I just wonder how receptive people are to that. But I don't know. Maybe they're like, oh, cool. Chris Gethard. I yeah. love that guy. And I'm waiting to see Jeff Rosenstock or something. And Chris <laughs> Gethard comes out. This is great. Um, I, I'm sure he's open for Jeff Rosenstock. He absolutely has. Or or at the very least, Jeff Rosenstock and Pup and that whole like side one dummy realm. Yeah. Uh, they, they've been on the Chris uh, Gethard show. So. Okay. So we've already blown our uh, <laughs> the meat pledge because we just got distracted again by comedians we keep getting sucked into comedian talk this is unbelievable we should, this is gonna be comedian cast uh before long uh let's talk about the new soccer mommy record it's called sometimes forever it is out today this is her third album uh you probably know soccer mommy already but for those who are just getting acquainted uh she is a uh singer songwriter from nashville named sophie allison uh, she first emerged in 2018 with her debut record, Clean. Then uh, her follow-up, Color Theory, came out in 2020. Both of those records were really acclaimed. I think especially Clean was a record that ended up on a lot of best-of year-end lists in 2018. And here she is again with her third record, Sometimes Forever. And this album is notable because it's produced by OPN, 10-point Tricks Never, who... Uh, has really broken out as a producer. He did a lot of work on The Weeknd's most recent record, Dawn FM. And now he is working in the uh, indie rock realm. Um, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this record. I have to say that like when I heard OPN was involved with Sophie Allison, that I was really intrigued because while I like her first two records, I can't say that I like them as much as other people have. Uh, she's working in this 90s pop rock lane that has become really popular in indie circles, especially among singer-songwriters uh, in the last, you know, two or three years. And she was really at the forefront of that. Um, and she has some nice songs, but I've never been bowled over by her record. So, like, when I heard that she was working with this uh, producer who's very renowned, it, it just seemed like, oh, this is going to be an opportunity maybe for her to break out a little bit. And I don't know if she really does. Like, I don't know if I would know that OPN did this record if it wasn't in the press release, you know? Mm. Am I wrong? I mean, how do you feel about this record? Well, I mean, just kind of think, like, thinking back on, like, Soccer Mommy and her, like, uh, trajectory throughout the late aughts and early 2000s, you are absolutely correct in that she is, if not the most indicative artist of this, you know, kind of central nexus between you know like maybe whip smart era liz fair but also like 90s alt rock like cleaner cheryl crow but also like late to mid aughts diy i mean it's a sound i think of clean it's a record i like a lot i put it up there with like all like the first always album or jsom's everyone were everybody works or even oso oso's basking in the glow is albums that are like kind of deceptively like they're minor classics and that they don't sound like these big breakout albums, but they sound like maybe 85% of like my promo pile, but like done so much better that you begin to appreciate just how much craft there is into it. Uh, Color Theory was an interesting record to me uh, in that Circle the Drain, fantastic song. One of my favorites of that year. Um, also like one of the last albums I remember really liking prior to the pandemic, but it, it kind of, 
writ large a lot of the issues I've seen with band like artists of that ilk who started out as bedroom performers and then had to kind of build out to a band. Uh, Color Theory, the production was like really, um, you know, it was really slick and also just kind of mid-tempo. It just sounded like she kind of needed like a band that, you know, was working with her like the entire time as opposed to, okay, here are my songs. We're just going to build out the rhythm tracks after the fact. Um, I didn't like that one as much, but that one also had a really strong presence on 2020's year end list. Um, I was also really excited to see that she was working with one Tricks point never because, uh, you know, this whole sound it's become like, we are just so oversaturated with like nineties alt rock revivalism that, it's really hard to stand out unless like the strength of the songwriting is so crystal clear that um, it can kind of overcome that. And so, I mean, and it's also just kind of like an unexpected, uh, it's kind of an unexpected collaboration. Cause you figure if she was, I don't know, trying to build out that sound, it would be like John Congleton or Chris Walla or someone like that. This is the first time I've heard when a tricks point never do a straight up indie rock record. And, you know, the first single, uh, Shotgun, I could kind of hear his touch on that. Like, I love that Daniel Patton has used the term, like, textural fascism to describe, like, why he likes certain keyboard sounds. Um, and there are some places where that really comes across on the record. But I think the most interesting thing going on here is that in the same way that we, you know, bands like, uh, you know, Soccer Mommy and Snail Mail and such have you know recreated the like recast 90s indie like 90s alt rock 90s alt rock eventually had to uh confront electronica and trip hop and the big departures on this record are like straight up like sneaker pimps yeah like portis head it's it's like really it's so it's so i guess fitting that the big departures on this record are like the big departures a band like this would have to make in 1998 as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, you know, I was expecting something similar to what Wendell Tricks Point Never did on the Weekend record, which was help give, and what he's done on previous Weekend releases, which is just give his records this sort of eerie 80s soundtrack type vibe. Uh, which is something I think he's been really good at. He's obviously done that on his own records, but as a producer, that seems like that's certainly one of the things I associate with him. And I thought, oh, he's going to give her records this great sense of atmosphere, which is something I think is missing a lot sometimes on her records, which seem like a little straight uh, to me. And when I was listening to this record, it actually made me think about this interview I did last year with BJ Burton, who is a producer who is most famous for uh, working with Bonnie Vare on 22 a million. He also produced the last two low records. And if you know anything about those albums, you know that Burton's aesthetic is essentially to take pretty music and make it sound ugly. You know, if I had to reduce it down, like that would be the simplest way to put it. And he worked with soccer mommy in 2001 on a single that she put out called rom-com 2004. And Allison talked about this when the song was released, that she had this demo for a while and her instructions to Burton were to take the song and, and destroy it. And when I interviewed BJ Burton about this, he said that he initially gave her like a very noisy 
production. It was very, very much him, very deconstructed and kind of fucked up sounding. And her label or, or her people or whoever said that the song was basically too noisy and that it had to be toned down because they wanted to get this song on the radio. And he basically just said, well, I'm not going to fight it. You know, that's just the way it is. But it made me think about this record because I do think that Sophie Allison, it seems like she has this instinct that she wants to take her songs in a more adventurous direction. But then for whatever reason, whether it's her or it's her people or, or whatever it is, it ends up getting watered down, I feel like. And I just wonder if like Soccer Mommy is on that runway now, like where there's this expectation that she's going to follow like the Mitski Japanese breakfast, Phoebe Bridgers path where you start in the indie world and you become an indie star. And then you become a mainstream star who can, you know, open for Harry Styles or perform on Saturday night live. Like it seems like an album like this might be a gesture in that direction. Um, I just wish it was bolder. I, I I just wonder if there's a version of this record that was maybe a little more radical and it was eventually, you know, the, the weirdness was taken out and we ended up with the record she ended up putting out. Yeah. The thing to me, the thing, the thing is though, that like the ones that are the biggest departures, um, like the ones that are like the most Portishead, the most trip hop are like the big misses for me, because I think that, um, you know, your dog or uh, circle the drain or shotgun or blood for that matter, or bones, the first song of this record that really shows where her strengths lie. But like when it gets more like production intensive and tries to be like menacing or abrasive, I don't think that uh, it it really works as much. So you're right in that it's kind of stuck in this, like neither here nor there territory where there are a couple of good songs in the beginning that are just a little more, unconventionally produced than say uh you know color theory but also it's not like the bold departure that you think it would be because i mean when i saw oh soccer mommy and opn together like i'm thinking to myself just based on that description alone this is like a this is like a potential like top five consensus album of the year just because the narrative is so irresistible but um yeah i mean i don't know if she really quite followed I mean, maybe you could see her following the Mitski Japanese Breakfast, eventually playing Saturday Night Live sort of deal. I just one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite moments from 2020 is hearing Bernie Sanders pronounce the name Sakamami or however <laughs> he did it. Uh, good good times, but yeah, um, yeah it's I, I I'm also wondering though whether this out and like look I have. I've always thought to like about some of these, like Laurel Hell, for example. Oh, is this the one where like people not necessarily turn on the artist, but like maybe it starts to deescalate, and that's never been the case. Um, I this record made me think of in the same way that uh, Clean made me reminded me of Death Cab for Cuties. We have the facts, and uh, we're voting yes in terms of the guitars and the lyrical content. Like I think about their album Plans which was super clean and like well-produced and like a lot of the old school fans kind of hated it, but I loved it because I was like, you know, 25 and super emotional. And I don't know, maybe this is going to be someone's plans, like the not as good record that they still love. But I, I, I was expecting this to be like, Oh yeah. The third soccer mommy album where she like becomes this elite songwriter. Maybe that's just like my own fucked up narrative 
thinking and expectations. But well, I mean, you brought up Laurel Hell, and I, I, I think of this album in the same context as Laurel Hell, where I felt like Laurel Hell was an album that uh, was making gestures to being a mainstream pop record, but was still in an indie world type situation, and it didn't seem for me to be satisfying in either way. It just seemed like to be splitting the difference in a way that just diminished the album. And most people like that album and she's done very well with that. And so it leads me to believe that even though I don't really like this album from soccer mommy, that it will be big. I I'm, I'm doing the George Costanza <laughs> thing, like where whatever I'm, I'm going with the opposite of how I feel like right. the opposite of how I feel is how is what's actually going to be the successful uh, turnout here. So, the fact that I don't like it, that's probably a good sign for Soccer Mommy. Probably means that <laughs> the, she's going to be really big with this record and she's going to be opening for huge pop stars and be on her way. And, and best of luck to her. I hope that happens for her. But yeah, for me, just in my personal view here, I just think that this record, um, it doesn't deliver on the potential of this pairing. I, I think that this album could have been a lot bolder and more interesting and, and given us a different look at what she does. And... Instead, it feels like treading water to me. Uh, I don't. I don't feel like she's really pushing it forward with this record. What I'm hoping, what I was like, kind of hoping for, aside from you know this being an amazing record. And by the way, like, well, Vindicat doesn't like it. That really bodes well for their commercial prospects. We got that's uh, that's right up there with like we're going to give you the meat in 30 minutes or less, as far as our taglines. But I, I was kind of hoping for even like a tremendous failure, you know, because. Gosh, I am so worn out by 90s alt-rock revivalism that I'm just hoping that we get somewhere different soon. But, like, I don't think that's going to be the case. The next Biba Doobie album, Beach Bunny, they're all going to be super... These are all, like, big albums coming out in July that kind of mine that similar sound. And Don't you think, though, that this lane is full now? Like, I don't think that there's going to be another new person to go in this lane. I think that... We, you know, we've we've hired all the applicants that are going to be in this lane, and they're going to ride it out, and we're going to see what happens. But, I mean, this has been going on for a while now. This trend, I don't know if there's much room for like newcomers. I think if if you're an aspiring singer songwriter, you might want to pick another lane uh, because I, I I just feel like the, like the the field is is closed. I think at this point. Don't you think? I don't know. I, I, I don't know how much farther you can push this if you're not already established at this point. Well, well because we're saying this, I guarantee like the next big <laughs> thing is going to emerge on TikTok doing like 90s all rock. They're going to sound like, uh, I don't know, what like the first Poe album. Yeah, but something. like we're getting to the point now, <laughs> though, like where we're 20 years now past like early aughts stuff. So I, I wonder if that's going to be the new reference point. If, if we're going to follow the common theory that nostalgia goes in 20 year waves even though we already had like a early aughts revival at least of the new york stuff but maybe um you know we're now gonna have people that sound you know we talked about fallout boy last week i mean maybe that's the new thing maybe we're gonna have a bunch of fallout boy sounding singer songwriters but pop punk is back didn't you know oh yeah (laughs) well that's true but context collapse that's really what we're dealing with here the, I, I love the anti uh, IndieCast endorsement, by the way. I think people are now going to be like lobbying us to say, do not like my record, because <laughs> that will mean I'm taking it to the bank. 
I'm going to be opening for Harry Styles, you know, within three months of, of your pan. I, th- I think that, you know, like the reverse jinx here, I think that could be a good part of our brand moving forward. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Yeah, I mean, despite the fact that there's, I think on the same day, Duncan Sheik and Pete Yorn put out records, I'm going to have to kind of steer away from the expected. And rec- we didn't talk about Sheik or, or Yorn? Gosh, we, we are fucking oh. up big time. By the I way, like Pete Yorn. Yeah, I, I fuck with Pete Yorn, definitely. He was on uh, Celebration Rock, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, I always feel loyalty to the old Celebration Rock Music guests. for the morning after. Fucking great album. So, I think that was an IndyCast Hall of Famer recently. Yeah. Oh. Day I Forgot, underrated. Yeah. I'll even go uh, to uh, uh, Nightwalker. Yeah. I'll go to that record, too. Yeah, one of Tricks Point Never, if you're listening. You and Pete Yorn really need to meet up. <laughs> um, but instead, I'm going to talk about a band from Richmond. It's Vers- Nightcrawler, by the way. Sorry, I said Nightwalker for ah. Pete Yorn. Gotcha. Say Nightcrawler. I want to make sure I get that right. <laughs> we, if nothing else, we got to like pledge allegiance to like Pete Yorn's catalog. But um, yeah, Richmond hardcore band called Candy. They are, they made an album in 2018 called Good to Feel with an extremely not safe for work uh, cover art. But they're back for their first album in four years. It is called Heaven Is Here. It's uh, they leveled up from Triple uh, B, a great hardcore label, to Relapse Records um, and. Just to give you an idea of what to expect on this album, uh, here are some of the song titles. Mutilation, World of Shit, Human Condition Above Human Opinion. Um, again, this is like one of those albums that I can highly recommend if, you, if you're if you not a mellow, ease into the morning sort of person such as myself. If you're like, I got to hit the gym by 7 o'clock so I can deal with work. I mean, I love my job, but nonetheless... Um, this one is it's 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 a leveling up in a way you would expect from a hardcore band to level up, which is to say the production's better. Uh, there's more electronic things going on. the the out al- The entire album is thirty minutes, but like it's only because the last song is twelve minutes. Um, and I would just recommend this to anyone who um, kind of misses the older Code Orange sound, like who kind of wishes they didn't go so wwe with it which by the way i love that aspect of code orange but no uh, yeah with this one if you just want to like break shit or just like punch a mirror or like uh i don't know break a school bus over your knee candy heaven is here that's the kind of album for you and i imagine steve your recommendation will be in a very similar lane no, it will not actually. This is not for this is for the people who don't want to wake up to world of shit in the morning. Uh, th- that seems rough. You, that's like instead of drinking coffee, you're just pouring it on your arm. That, that's what I imagine. Like you waking up in the morning and doing that. Um, I'm going to recommend an album that uh, I've actually been listening to a lot this month, not just this week. You know, we haven't done recommendation corner here for for a minute, so. Uh, I feel like I have to play catch up here with a record that I really love a lot. It's called Teeth Marks. It's by an artist named S.G. Goodman, who's a singer-songwriter from Kentucky. This is her second album. And I've been describing it to people as a really good compliment to the Angel Olsen record that came out earlier this month. If you remember, the latest Angel Olsen record, which is called Big Time, is really in this sort of lush, retro, country, psychedelic, type vibe uh, with really big productions and really just gorgeous vocals. Um, 
And again, you know, I, that's probably my favorite Angel Olsen record that I've ever heard. Um, and this record by S.G. Goodman, Teeth Marks, I think is really much in the same vein, although I would say it's more stripped down. It doesn't quite have the grandiosity of the Angel Olsen album, but it has a similar, I think, vibe of melancholy and beauty. There's also uh, queer themes on this record, as there are on the Angel Olsen album. Um, I would say that the uh, S.G. Goodman record, though, like it rocks a little harder. Like there is a uh, a blue collar aspect to a lot of her writing. She's writing about small town life and dealing with with economic uh, sort of inequality and 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 just like how a lot of towns in Middle America have been ravaged in uh, recent years by you know. Uh, just a myriad of problems and she's really writing from that perspective and there's actually some songs on this record that remind me of like ccr like that kind of blue collar vibe got some chugly songs <laughs> on there which are great uh along with the more sort of slower uh more beautiful songs but uh yeah i think this is a really special record and i i i, I really have been enjoying playing it here in the summertime i think it's a great album to play at dusk uh so wake up <laughs> to uh, Ian's record, blast some world of shit in the morning, and then at, when you're chilling out later on, maybe put on Teeth Marks by S.G. Goodman. I think you got a recipe for a well-rounded day. Yeah, we, we got a good life plan here. I, I, yeah, I, I'm interested <laughs> in this record. You know, S.G. Goodman, M.J. Lenderman. I think we got yes. like, we, we are one away. Like some singer songwriter in like the kind of uh, Sun Belt. You know, maybe from Tennessee is going to like rename them like self as like AJ something or other and you know exactly. get the cast seal of approval. So yeah, initial core. Yeah, got initial <laughs> core coming up. It's going to be great. Uh well that about does it for this episode of IndieCast. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.